as we know this week's parsha is Parsha's Kisisa, and that opens with Kisisa is B'nai Yisrael, when you have a counting of the Jewish people. So what we're going to discuss today is some of the relevant halachos that emerge from that opening words of the parsha of doing a count of the Jewish people. As we know, not only do we read it this Shabbos, but the beginning of the parsha is also what we read a couple of weeks ago on Parsha Shkalim. That was the introduction to Purim. So we begin with the Gemara Mesechus Brachos. The Gemara says we learn from the Pasuk, he says, Rosh B'nai Yisrael Lefkudehem. V'nasnu ish kofer nafsho. So it says, when we count, when we have a census of the Jewish people, so everybody has to give a kofer nefesh. What does a kofer nefesh mean? Kofer nefesh means I give something in place of myself, which is what? A maxis hashekel. And that's why we read it right before Purim. Rashi says, why do I give a maxis hashekel in place of myself? When we're doing the census, why doesn't every person just show up and say, I'm here? And then we'll mark them down. The answer is, says Rashi, Shaminian Sholibo Ainhara. If you're going to actually go around and count people individually, that would be creating a situation where we have concern of Ainhara. However, if we're going to each give a Maxis Hashekel and then we're going to count the Shkalim, that would be something that alleviates this concern. Writes the Gemara. This is something that is so obvious, the problem of Ayin Hara that comes from counting individual people that the Gemara says, Amrle HaKadosh Baruch Hu LeDavid. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to David HaMelech, David Melech Yisrael, HaRe Ani Machshilcha B'davar She'afilu Tinoke Shabes Rabban Yodim Oso. I'm going to make you make a mistake, David HaMelech, on something that is so elementary, that is so basic, that is so obvious. And what is that? David HaMelech wanted to do a census and he forgot. He didn't realize that you're supposed to do it with or with some other item. And instead, David HaMelech went around and counted the Jewish people. And the Gemara says that that was considered to be a terrible mistake. David HaMelech should not have done that. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu criticized him for doing so. Now the Ramban on Chumash, both in our Parsha, as well as in Parsha's Bamidbar, when we talk about different countings here in Kisisa, as well as in Bamidbar, the Ramban asks, we're talking about David HaMelech, come on. David HaMelech, you think he didn't know the Pasuk in Chumash? You think you forgot that it says Kisisa is Rosh B'nei Yisrael when you do a census of the Jewish people. You have to have them use some other item instead of themselves. How is it possible that David HaMelech made this mistake? How can that be? Where did he go wrong? So it's a very interesting discussion that the Ramban has. He gives different interpretations in different places. In Parshas Bamidbar, the Ramban writes something that some of the Achronim quote later, Lahalacha. The Ramban says that it's true. In fact, when somebody's doing a counting... When you're doing a counting that is a purposeful counting, then you're allowed to do it even by counting heads. However, the Ramban says the taina against David HaMelech was that David HaMelech was doing a totally unnecessary count. David HaMelech was doing something here, says the Ramban. David was doing nothing with this count. All he wanted it for was says the Ramban, the only reason why David HaMelech wanted this was because he wanted to show how powerful he was. If I know how many people are under my jurisdiction, it makes me feel better about what kind of leader I am. If I have no count, if I have no finite number, then what does my leadership actually represent? I have no way of knowing. And therefore, David Amalek says, I want to do a census. I want to do a count, not because I need to know how much taxes everyone has to pay, not because I need to know how many hospitals we need to have, but rather because I need to know how powerful I am. And therefore, says the Ramban, that was the mistake that David HaMelech made. The Ramban explains, Any time that the Jewish people were counted, it was always for a purpose. For example, as they traveled in the Midbar, after they came out of Kriyas Yamsuf, all of that was for a purpose. But over here, 
There was no purpose at all. And therefore he says that is why David HaMelech was punished, which would seem to be an understanding that even had David HaMelech done it with a kofar nefesh, with a machzis hashekel, or with some other item, everybody would give an animal, everybody would give money, that still would have been a problem, because David HaMelech was only doing so l'chavod atzmo. He wasn't doing it for any real legitimate sorech at all, and that is why David HaMelech in some way was criticized for what he had done. We have a second place in the Gemara where this is mentioned. The Gemara of Meseches Yuma talks about there were many, many kohanim who used to come to the Beis HaMikdash. All of them wanted to do the avoda. All of them wanted to be involved in the service in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Gemara says they used to only need, let's say, 10 kohanim in the morning, or 20, or 30, or 40 kohanim. But there were 100 of them standing there. So the Gemara says, how are we going to limit? How are we going to figure out who should be in, who should be out, or how many kohanim we have? Says the Gemara, each kohen had to stick out a finger, and then we counted fingers to figure out how many people there were. Ask the Gemara, why do I have to have everybody stick out a finger? Why don't I just look at all their heads and count each head that's standing in front of us? So the Gemara says, no, because if we would do that, that would be a problem of Ayin Hara. That would be a problem, like the Torah says here by Kisisa, that we have to be concerned to count heads as something that we certainly should not do. This is quoted the Halacha and the Rambam, when the Rambam talks about the Avodah and the Beis Amigdash and how we're going to count, how many Kohanim we have, how many Kohanim we need, how many we don't have. So the Rambam there tells us that this is something that we have to be concerned about. And the Magen Avram and Arachayim, Simen Kufnun Vav, which is Hilchus Tfila, Hilchus Beis HaKnesses, there the Magen Avram talks about it as well. The context there is talking about to count up a minion. How do we know if we have enough people for a minion? So there the Magen Avram says we're not allowed to count people as they are. Afilo Lidvar Mitzvah. Even if it's for the sake of a mitzvah, still we should refrain from doing it because we have to be concerned from an Ayin Hara. And therefore the Magen Avram says everyone should stick out a finger or something like the Gemara describes and that will alleviate the problem. The Kitzvah Shulchan Aruch writes that based on this, this is why the practice has developed that when you're trying to count people, you'll say a Pasuk that has 10 words. Hoshiach Samech Secha has a 10-word Pasuk. That's the way to count out whether or not we have a minion or something of that nature. Now, you might be wondering, this is totally irrelevant. When was the last time you ever counted people? When does this ever come up? And the answer is, it's actually extremely relevant. The truth is, over the past 75 years, this has been a very richly and hotly debated topic in the halachic literature. Can a Jewish state, as we are zocha, as we are privileged to have today, can they conduct a census? Is the state of Israel able to have a census? And even if the state of Israel maybe doesn't do everything al pi halacha all the time, but we as citizens who are religious Jews, are we allowed to participate in a census? So if they send out the information and they want all of us to fill it out, do we have a right to go along with it or do we have to say we're going to boycott the census and that's going to throw off all the numbers? So this is a major discussion in the contemporary postkin. The Sri De'esh, Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg, who was a survivor of the Holocaust and after the war, he was a great postkin, after the war he moved to Switzerland, I believe, so the Sri De'esh quotes the Ramban on Chumash in Parshas Bamidbar. And what does the Ramban on Chumash say? The Ramban says the only problem why David HaMelech was held responsible for what he did wrong was because David HaMelech had no tzorach. He was no real justification for him doing a count. And that is why the Gemara says David HaMelech in some way was criticized for doing the count in his time. The only reason he did it was to show his prowess, was to show his power. That's not a legitimate enough reason. However, from that Ramban we learn that if there is a tzorach, if there is a reason, then of course you're allowed to do a census. The same way they did it in the days of Kisisa, in the days of the Torah, in Parshas Bamidbar they did it. It was done all the time throughout the traveling of the Jewish people in the desert because there was a need for it. So today, when we're trying to run a country and we're trying to figure out how many citizens are there in the country, 
How many people do we need to take care of? How many people are on welfare? How many people have jobs? How many children does everybody have? How many hospitals do we need to have? How many pediatric centers do we need to resurrect? How many trains? How many buses? All of that goes into figuring out how many citizens there are in a country. If you're not going to have that information, then you're not going to be able to run the country properly. And therefore, based on that, the Sri Asia argues, based on their Ramban on Chumash, that would be a good enough justification for us to allow a census to be done Bizman Hazet. Rabbi, um, Rabbi Vadi Yosef, when he discusses this in one of his chuvas, very beautiful chuva, he talks about it and he adds another consideration. Maybe the only problem of doing a census and the consideration of an Ayin Hara is only when I'm counting heads. However, over here, where everybody's filling out a form and sending it back into the government, the government is just counting up pieces of paper and taking the information and making a log of it. Maybe that would not be the same. So that is a discussion Rabbi Vadi Yosef has. Other Achronim seem to say that this is something that is only a concern when you're counting Jews alone, but when I have the entire population, which is Jews and non-Jews alike, so then there's no Ayn Hara involved. It's everybody that we're talking about, and it's not specifically targeting Jews, and therefore we would say maybe that's another point to consider with regard to a modern-day census as we understand it today. Rabbi Vadi Yosef then quotes a Kliyakar on our Parsha, which is interesting, not on our Parsha, sorry, in Parsha's Bamidbar. Kliyakar on Chumash is not a halachic sefer, so we can't really draw a halachic argument from the Kliyakar. But Rabbi Vadia and his genius knew everything. So when he goes through a discussion, he includes everything, even the Kliyakar on Chumash. And here Rabbi Vadia writes as follows, and he says, the reason why there was a concern for Ein Hara, when the Torah talks about in Parshish Kisisa, the first census, the first count of the Jewish people, the reason why there was a concern is because Hayasamach Lemaisa Ha'egel. This counting of the Jewish people was right around the time of the story of the Egel. And says the Kliyakar, Hayadavar Chidush Aribui Misparam. The reason why there was a concern of the Ayin Hara there, why everybody had to give a Machsas HaShekel, why was that necessary? Says the Kliyakar, that was a one-time consideration because we had just been in Mitzrayim. How many people were members of the Jewish community when they went down to Mitzrayim? How many? Seventy. Yishivim Nefesh Yardu Avasecha Mitzrayim. Yaakov Avinu comes down to Mitzrayim with seventy people. Then the Jewish people are oppressed for 200 years. You would say, there's nobody left. Who's going to be left after this terrible extermination? They killed all the boys. They were killing people all over the place. There were death marches. Everything's terrible. The Mitzrayim. So how many Jews are going to be left? None. Now the Torah says, let's count the Jewish people. Hundreds of thousands of people. That's where you have an Ayin Hara, where it's totally unexpected. We expected to have a small, fledgling nation few hundred people. How many are going to be left? Yaakov Avinu comes down with 70 people. How big did they grow after they were being oppressed all that time? Says the Kliyakar. That's where the Torah says when you're doing a census and the result of that is going to be so unexpected, so shocking, that's where you have to be concerned about an Ayin Hara. And therefore the Torah says on that occasion that you have to do it with a Maxas HaSheka. However, when we're talking about a regular situation, we have a country in Israel today. We know roughly how many people there are. It's not going to be a shock to anybody what the numbers are going to be. It's not like the population has exploded where nobody's going to know what the outcome is. We just want to have a little bit more precision. We want to know a little bit closer to what that actual number is. In such a case, says the Kliyakar, perhaps the whole issue of Marisa, uh, the whole issue of Ayn Hara will not be a consideration at all that we need to think about because it's not relevant to this situation. It was something that the Torah was only concerned about when the outcome of the count is going to be something that is far beyond anyone's expectations. So that's also an interesting point to consider. Whether this applies to the modern-day census or not, as we mentioned, the premise of our entire discussion really revolves around this idea 
of an Ayin Hara. What is this concept of an Ayin Hara? It's something that is discussed in the Gemara Bab Metziah. It's something that the Medrash talks about. So the Gemara says that Rav made a statement once. Rav, the great Amora, said that 99% of the people who die in the world die because of an Ayin Hara. That's a frightening statement. That's a frightening statement. And something that always troubled me was, so what exactly does it mean? It means HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted me to die at 120 years old. And he wanted me to live a healthy life. Then along came someone else, looks at my life, decides to have an evil eye, decides to think ne- negatively about me, and because of that, the trajectory of my life is now going to change? How, how do you understand that? Is that really possible, that somebody else is able to then inflict an ayin hara on me and change the course and direction of my life because of the way they're thinking? So that's something that I'm very troubled by, but the truth is, when you look in Chumash, you find many references to this concept, to this idea of an ayin hara. For example, Rashi says that Yaakov Avinu told his children, Rashi in the very end of Sefer Bereshia says, Yaakov Avinu told his children that they shouldn't all show up in one Pesach. Yaakov Avinu had a beautiful family, and they were all very princely-like, and they were all very good-looking, and they were all very strong, and therefore Yaakov Avinu said, I have to be concerned about an Ayin Hara, and therefore I don't want all of you showing up in one place. Everyone should split up a little bit so that we shouldn't have anyone think about Ayin Hara that will be damaging to us. Rashi writes in Sefer Bamidbar that when Bilam was hired to go curse the Jewish people, what was it that Bilam tried to do? Rashi says, Bikesh lahachnis bahem ayin hara. Bilam was not trying to wage war. All Bilam tried to do was place an ayin hara onto the Jewish people and thereby destroy them. Fascinating. So this idea of ayin hara seems to be real. The Gemara says in Masechus Bab Metziah that if somebody finds a certain kind of very unusual article of clothing, somebody finds a, a mink coat, so it's very expensive, so what am I supposed to do? I have a mitzvah of Hashavah Sabedah. Now, hang up signs all over the place. Nobody comes for it. What do I do now? What do I do? So the halacha is, I have to hold on to it until somebody comes. I have to keep trying to announce it. Now, says the Gemara, if I have an expensive article of clothing that's going to sit in my closet for the next five years, it's going to get ruined. The clothing are going to stay in shape if you take it out every so often and you shake that out, you make sure it doesn't get... I don't know, moth holes in it, whatever, whatever it is. You have to be concerned. So you have to take it out every so often to make sure that the quality of this article of clothing is going to be upheld. It's going to be upkept during the duration of the time that you're trying to find its owner. So says the Gemara that if I have this kind of mink coat, I have to take it out once every 30 days. I have to shake it out. I have to put it on, make sure that it's okay. And then I put it back in the closet and continue to try to look for the owner. Says the Gemara, what happens if the 30th day falls out to be on a day when I have a lot of guests in my house. A lot of guests visiting my house. And every 30th day, I have a reminder on my phone that I should take out this coat and I should shake it out, I should try it on and make sure that it's okay. But that day, when the mm-hmm. alarm goes off, it happens to be that there are many people visiting my home. Says the Gemara, you're not allowed to take it out on that 30th day, even though I have an obligation. Part of my Hashavah Saveda is not just to give it back, but to look after it until it gets back to its rightful owner. So why shouldn't I take it out today? So one opinion in the Gemara is if people are going to see this beautiful coat in your house, they're going to steal it. They're going to sneak into your house one day when you're not looking, they're going to take it away now that they know what you have. And you have to be careful, so therefore you can't take it out. But the other opinion in the Gemara is we're concerned of an Ayin Hara. People are going to see this expensive coat, they're going to say, oh, wow, look at that. And therefore, because of an Ayin Hara, the Gemara says, you're not allowed to take out the coat when you have a lot of 
company in the house. So you see, the Gemara does take Ayin Hara very seriously. The Gemara writes about Metziah as well. When we're trying to figure out what kind of investment I should buy, I want to buy real estate, I want to buy a building, I want to buy a field. What kind of field should I invest in? Says the Gemara, make sure that you don't buy a field that's on the corner of the city. It's on the outskirts of the city. Why? Because everyone's going to be driving by there. Everyone's going to be seeing it on their way, traveling out of the city. And therefore the Gemara says, don't you have a concern of Ayin Hara? Everyone's going to see that a big sign on the field is going to say, Shechter's Orchards, and everyone's going to be jealous of what I have. And therefore the Gemara says, we have to be concerned because of an Ayin Hara. And the same goes, the Gemara tells us in Mesechah's Baba Basra. And this is quoted the Halach and Shulchan Aruch, which I think is a very fascinating Halacha. The Gemara says that while my friend is in the middle of working his field, I'm not allowed to stand here and watch what he's doing. Why? Says the Gemara, because it's going to cause damage through my Ayin Hara. What's gonna, what am I going to be thinking? Well, I see my friend cutting down all of his harvest. Well, I see that he's being so successful. Well, I see that things are going really well for him. What's going to be going through my mind? I'm not going to be thinking, oh, I'm so happy for him. He's making so much money. He has a great parnasa. What I'm going to be thinking is, I wish HaKadosh Baruch Hu would have given that to me. And I'm going to be somewhat jealous. I'm going to feel uncomfortable. I'm maybe going to have an Ayin Hara. And says the Gemara, as a result of that, we're not allowed to have, we're not allowed to look. It's called Hezek Re'iyah. We're not allowed to look when somebody else is cutting down their produce. So what's interesting is, usually when we talk about damaging another person, it's that I do something tangibly that causes harm to another individual. I take something and I throw it into your property and it destroys the ground. I take something and I smash a window. So that's called a hezek, that's called a damage. Here, the Gemara introduces us to a new concept, which is something that we refer to as hezek re'iyah, which means nothing tangible changes as a result of what I did. But all that happens is I inflict, I impose an ayin hara onto your property, onto your life, and that's something that's considered to be a damaging act on my part. Fascinating. But that's what the Gemara tells us. In Shulchan Aruch, in Hilchos Kriyas HaTorah, Shulchan Aruch says that we're not supposed to call up two brothers one after the other. Because there's a concern. People in Shul are going to be looking around saying, oh, two brothers one after the other. This is such a prominent family. They're so important. They get to steal two aliyos out of the seven. Therefore, the Shulchan Aruch says, we should try to abstain from having two brothers get aliyos right after, one after the other. Once again, because of an Ayin Hara. The Shulchan Aruch writes as well in Evan Ezer, if you're going to have two families that are making weddings, you shouldn't make the weddings at the same time in the same place because we have a concern that there's going to be an Ayin Hara. People are going to see, oh, two Hassanim, two Kalos, so exciting, so wonderful. We don't want to have any Ayin Hara and therefore we have to be very, very careful for that and not to plan two weddings at the same time. Yeah. People are people. Yes. So hold on to your question for a minute. The Tosas Rid, I'm not ignoring it. I just, I hope to get to it. The Tosas Rid, one of the Gedoli HaRishonim, writes something absolutely fascinating and it speaks a little bit to what you said. So you said, there's only so much I could do to try to hold back from an Ayin Hara. You know, my father likes to talk about the fact one of the major themes of Rav Soloveitchik that he'd love to speak about was the mitzvah of the halachta bedrachav. We should try in many ways to emulate HaKadosh Baruch Hu in many different ways in our life. So something that my father likes to point out is the description of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is that he is a kel mistater. That HaKadosh Baruch Hu chooses to make himself hidden. So much so that the Navi Yecheskel says HaKadosh Baruch Hu is so hidden that there were members of his generation who didn't believe that God even existed. 
Because they said, he's obviously not here. If he was here, we would notice him. But the Rebbe Shalom is obviously not here. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu hides himself. And this really is also part of our obligation of being a people that lives B'Tselem Elohim, that lives in the image of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that we try the Halachta B'Drachav in many different ways. But one of them is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a Kel Mestater, and we should try and strive to be the same way. When we talk about Tznius, Tznius does not mean one aspect of Tznius is how we dress. But it's not so much the length of what we wear or the appropriateness of what we wear. It's more, are we being the kinds of people that are tznuim, just like HaKadosh Baruch Hu? The Navi says, that's really what tznius is all about. It's a mindset. It's men and women. It's every member of the Jewish people should try to strive for that ideal of being like HaKadosh Baruch Hu in this regard, that we have the ability to live lives being tznuim. It's so antithetical to our culture today where you go on Instagram and you go on Twitter and people are posting such details about their own lives. It's so against everything that we stand for. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter what kind of clothing you go out in the street with. The whole definition of these social media platforms is such a lack of sneos in every single way. Every way, in everything we do. You're posting to the world what you had for dinner, who you went on a date with, where you decided to go, what you decided to do. It's your family member's birthday. It's your birthday. It's, it. it's your anniversary. Why, why would you share that? For what? Why would you share that with other people? It's totally inappropriate. It's everything that runs against and we should feel uncomfortable living in a kind of reality where we're oversharing. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. Yes? So, so just like Gila, I want you to hold on to that because I think it's going to be relevant to what we're going to quote from our Moshe Feinstein in a few minutes. Okay? Once again, I'm not ignoring. So the Tosas Rid writes something that I find absolutely fascinating. Gila mentioned when we talk about an Ayn Hara, it's like, I can try to live my life as much as I can in a certain way, but I can't stop people from looking at me or judging me or viewing me negatively. How, what am I supposed to do? Tosas Rid writes something. I'm going to read his words. I, says the Tosas Rid, one of the Rishonim, placed an Ayin Hara on myself. What does that mean? He says, I saw that I have so much good in my family, in my life. And I placed an Ayin Hara on myself. I placed a worse Ayin Hara on myself than the entire community placed on me. Nobody else was focusing on it. Nobody else was giving me an Ayin Hara. I gave myself an Ayin Hara because I was so focused. And I think that's part of what you're saying. I'm so focused on what I have, on how lucky, on how amazing this is, on how opulent my lifestyle is, on all the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given me. That can also place an Ayin Hara on oneself. And that I find to be a fascinating, startling comment, but one that really is extremely instructive and very much along the lines of what you're saying, that Ayin Hara also has a lot to do with me and how I view myself, how I view my life, how I view the things and the blessings and the bracha that I have in my life. The Chazal tell us in Mesechas Tainis Davches 
Ein habracha metsuya el abedavar hasamoi min ha'ayin. The greatest way to have blessing in our lives is to have something that is hidden, to have something that is quiet. My father likes to say over, it's an age-old mystery. Why is it that we break a glass under a chuppah? What is that all about? So the Gemara Masechus Brachos tells a story that one of the Amoraim was once at a wedding and people were getting too lightheaded, was getting too out of control, and he felt he had to somehow figure out how to rein it back in. What was he going to do? Says the Gemara, he took a big fancy crystal glass, smashed it on the floor, he got everyone's attention, they all got serious, and he said, we have to refocus, we have to redirect ourselves and make sure not to get too out of hand. Okay, so why do we do it at a wedding? Some say it's to remind us of that, that we shouldn't get too out of hand, and when we see the broken glass, that's what it is. My father likes to say, perhaps the reason why, he quotes it in the name of Rav Gifter, perhaps the reason why is because, Chazal tell us, that the first luchos were smashed. Why were the first luchos smashed? says the Medrash, because there was so much fanfare that came along with the giving of the first luchos, and Ayin Hara was sholate in them. It says that by the first, by Kabbalah Satorah, by the giving of the luchos, by the giving of the Torah, everything came to a standstill. The whole world stopped. There was so much attention and so much fanfare with the giving of the luchos. As a result of that, an Ayin Hara was inflicted upon the luchos, and they were smashed as a result of that. What we come to remind a couple of when they get married is... <coughs> If you're not if you're not going to be careful about your marriage, if you're not going to be careful to remember the message of those broken luchos, perhaps the breaking of the glass is to remind us of the broken luchos. Understand that a marriage can be shattered, an entire home can be shattered. Can there be a greater, more important message that we give a chasan and kala than that? The foundation of your home has to be one that is built on snius, not in how you dress but in how you behave, what your perspective is, what you choose to share with other people. Right? It says, the Shulchan Aruch says, when a woman goes to the mikvah, she's not supposed to share it with other people. It's a private discussion between herself and her husband. And it's inappropriate for that information to be shared with others. And that's the way it should be. But that's really instructive about how our entire lives are supposed to be. That everything we do should be with a certain sense of tzniyus. My father likes to say that he feels uncomfortable that unfortunately he has to stand up and speak in public every day of his life. So it's what HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants him to do, but there should be a sense of being uncomfortable in that role because it's a violation, it's a breach of my tzniyos every time I have to stand up in public and do that. So you have people who come and fight over the Yomud. You're missing the point. It's a bidieved to take the Yomud. It's a terrible thing that one person has to stand up and be the shliach tzibur. It should be embarrassing for you to be the one singled out. So, Nebuch, we have to have someone in the community who's going to stand up and do it. All right, so we have a way of figuring out who that's going to be. But it shouldn't be something that I should fight over. It should be something I should fight over not being able to, not wanting to do. Because I don't want to violate, I don't want to breach my tzniyus. Anyway, very interesting discussion that the Gemara has. But as I mentioned, something that I've always wondered is, I don't fully understand what actually happens when somebody gives you an Ayin Hara. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu has a plan for me in my life, so what happens when somebody inflicts an Ayin Hara upon the life that I'm living, upon my experience. What exactly does it mean? Chazanish talks about it, and he says that there's some kind of cause and effect that happens when a person thinks negatively, when somebody um, inflicts it upon me. I don't really understand what he's saying. I don't really get what the balance is, but I'll read you the words of the Maharal. The Maharal writes that a person who gives an ayin hara is nechshav mishuhu ra ayin legodel roa hapoel shehu kamo shrichas 
it's tantamount to shvichas damim. It's just as potent and just as dangerous as somebody who goes and actually, with his own hands, murders another person. Says the Maharal, Ayin Hara is something real that we have to think about. Ki Ayin Hara yesh koach ashi soref. Ayin Hara can be something that is venomous. It can be something that burns a person. Umekabal ha'adam hezik min hamazik. And I get damaged by the one who is damaging me through the way that he's viewing my life. So this is something that the Rishonim take very seriously. And it's something that we've all heard about. We daven every day that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should save us from an Ayin Hara. We wouldn't throw it into the davening if it wasn't something that was actually relevant. But we say it every morning in the beginning of davening that HaKadosh Baruch Hu should save us from an Ayin Hara. But at some point, the Gedolei HaPoskim of our generation have written that we don't need to be overly concerned for an Ayin Hara Bezman Hazit. We don't have to be overly concerned. Rabbi Vadi Yosef has a long shuva where he discusses it, and he says as follows. He says that the whole idea of Ayin Hara is nismayit bizman hazet. The whole notion of being worried about Ayin Hara and never telling how many children are in your family and don't tell anybody what you do for a living, that whole thing is not something we have to be so concerned about today. Now again, that doesn't mean we should violate our tzinius principles. It doesn't mean we should overshare. But he says we don't have to be overly concerned about an Ayin Hara. How do you know? Says Rabbi Vadia, back in the days of the Gemara, it could be in today's generation, we don't have to be as concerned. Why? Mitam, he explains it, Ayin Hara is something that has power when there's such a overwhelming sense of purity, of sanctity in the world of Kedusha. But today, he says, when we don't have so much Kedusha, so there's not so much Tumah either. And therefore, the Ayin Hara doesn't have as much power. It's Zelu Mazet. It's one against the other. It's two different forces that are pulling at each other. And therefore, says Herbavadya, we're lucky today that we don't have so much Kedusha, that we're not as holy as they once were, and therefore we don't have to be as concerned about Ayin Har. Sounds interesting. I don't know exactly where he gets it from, but listen to his words that he said in another place. I'm going to read them, because I would never say them myself. Okay, listen to what he says. Baruch Hashem Hayom Mi Choshesh Ayin Har. Says Herbavadya, who's afraid of an Ayin Har today? You have some elderly people, some people from the older generation are worried about this. Most people today really don't have major concerns. And says I say, If you're not worried about an Ayin Hara, then don't begin to be worried about an Ayin Hara. If it's something that doesn't concern you, leave it as is. And don't think about it. Every so often, says Ravadi, you have some nudniks who come and ask all kinds of questions about Ayin Hara. Again, I'm, I'm not calling them that. It's Ravadi is calling them that. And he says, today, I think we don't have to be concerned about it. Ramosha Feinstein writes the same thing, that he feels that Ayin Hara is not something that we need to be overly concerned about. But again, Ramosha says it should be with the balance, that we shouldn't go to the extreme and overshare and give people an opportunity to give us an Ayin Hara. We should try our best not to. However, at the same time, Ramosha says it's not something that should consume us. It's not something that should be so overly concerning about the way we lead our lives. Rabbi Vadya writes in another place, such a fantastic point, and I, I just love it. It speaks to me so powerfully. 
and I, I absolutely love the way he formulates this. And I actually thought about it. I was only reminded of it last night because a woman called my wife yesterday and asked her the following question. And my wife repeated it to me, and I was just so beside myself. This is a single girl called my wife and said, you know, I love to talk. She's not from our neighborhood. She says, I, you know, I love to talk to you because you're so relatable. And the rabbit's in my shul. I can't talk to her. So do you mind if I ask you a question? Sure. So what's the question? She says, I have a shayla. I signed up to say nishmas for 40 days in a row. And I forgot to do it one day. So I want to know, do I have to restart the 40 days starting tomorrow? Or can I just say that at the end, on day 41, I'll just do an extra day and that will count for the day I missed? These are the shadows of our generation. Okay. So my wife started to explain to her, you know, this is really not with any halafic backing at all. This whole nishmas thing is maybe nice, maybe not nice, I don't know. But it has no halachic validity at all. And this is not a shayla to be asking. Figure out what to do. Whatever you want to do is fine. She said it much nicer than I am. However, the girl then said, well, you know, tefillah in general is a problem. So my wife said, what do you mean tefillah is a problem? She said, well, you know, I really just don't connect to tefillah. It just doesn't, just like, doesn't make sense. So my wife said, what do you mean? So she said, well, every morning I try to say brachos. So my wife said to her, I don't understand. You're taking upon yourself to say nishmas 40 days and calling with a Shiloh, what do I do when I miss one day of nishmas? Do I do day 41 or do I have to start the whole thing over? And you're not worried about your mitzvah saseh midaraisa every single day of reciting Kriyashma? Shachar Zvarvis, you're a single girl. It's not like you have children that you're taking care of, and I'm sure you have responsibility, but you can't find 10 minutes every day to say Kriyashma and Shmona Esrei. And I find so often, again, I'm not blaming her, I think it's a lack of perspective. We're so focused on all these Nishmas things and all this nonsense that we forget what Yiddishkeit is all about. Kriyashma every day. This is what Judaism is. HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to say Kriyashma b'shach b'cha uvukumecha. He wants us to daven every day la'avda b'cholavavchem. And you're busy asking Shilas about your nishmas when you're getting up every day and not davening. How do you understand that? How do you wrap your head around it? Says Ramavadya, and this is what made me remind myself of his, I guess, rant, was, that's what this just was, I'm sorry. But Ramavadya writes the following. Says Rabbi I'd like to share something with you that is relevant to our generation. There are people. Instead of being afraid, instead of having They're more worried about all of this necromancy, they're more worried about all the Ayin Haras and what do I do if I skip one day of Nishmas? How worried are you about you skip one day of Kriyashma? How worried are you that you don't say brachos before you eat and you drink? You're not worried about that. You're worried about all this nonsense. Says Rabbi So instead of being worried about Yiras Shamayim, you're busy worrying about all this? Listen to what he says. Vidarshim Eitzel Megali Asidos, they go to these people who can tell, see into the future, the Yode Rafuas Alil Yarakos, people who know how to mix all kinds of vegetables together, and they're going to make the secret potion to make everything in your life go away. Nothing's going to be a problem. And I'm sorry to tell you, says Rabbi Vadia, 
by doing this and by being involved in this, you're pushing yourself out of Olam Hazeh and out of Olam Hava. You're forgetting what life really is. Ki mashkiyam as kol kol choseyam haruchniyam bedivrei hevel. They're involved in such silliness. Shemachnisim ba'olam elu hashotim that these silly people shechalkam avkorim rabbanim umekubalim some of them refer to themselves as rabbanim or mekubalim and says Ravadi, I have no problem saying even about those individuals that they are we should stay away from such individuals because they are not advancing our cause of Yerushalayim at all. Anyone who believes in this, and you are made to believe that this is truth and Judaism, it's foolish. Anyone who knows anything understands. Everybody knows that this is nonsense and it's nothingness. Now I have to say that I really appreciate those words. And Rabbi Vadi was known to be feisty sometimes. And this is clearly something that bothered him. And that's why he gets very excited about it. And I grew up in a home where we clearly don't believe in any of this. This is just not the background that I had. And maybe some of you grew up in other kinds of homes. So about a year ago, I was in Eretz Yisrael with a small group of people, and somebody says to me, you know, we're here anyway, we're in Yerushalayim, we're going into, we're going to stop the van, we were all in a van together, we're going to stop the van, we're going to a certain Mekubal, Tzadik, whatever, I'm like, I'm not going. Oh, we're here anyway, we told them you're here, the rabbi, you got to come in. I'm like, look, I don't know what to do. You told him I'm here, if I don't go in, so now I'm going to be embarrassing him and showing him that I don't respect him. So I thought... Better of the two options is, if I go inside, play along, I'm going to sit there and not say anything. Okay, at least I'm not being disrespectful to his face. And I didn't want to make the other people feel that I didn't respect him either, so I thought that was the right choice. I go inside, and he's talking to everybody, and then he says, um, you know, what about you? So I said, yeah, what about me? So he says, um, so, you know, what are you here to talk about? I said, actually, nothing. So he says, um, I said, I'm just here with the group. They brought me along. So he says, okay, what are the names of your wife and children? So I start telling him, he says, no, 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 you have to write it down. So okay. So I write it down. He looks at it. I never met this man in my life. He looks at it. And he says, I think you should go outside and call your wife. Something's bothering her. Is she normally a very calm person? He said, yeah, she's a very calm person. So he says, I'm telling you, there's something not right. I said, maybe it's because I'm not home. I'm in Israel. She's in America taking care of the kids by herself. He says, maybe. I don't know. Go outside and call her. Come back. I said, okay. I go outside. I call her. I said, everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. The babysitter just called and she canceled. She's not coming today. I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to get to work and do all the appointments and everything I need to do. I go, wow, this is amazing. Okay, I wasn't sure what to make of it. Fine, I go back inside. I said, you know, it's true. Something uh, something didn't go right for her today. Or Hashem, it wasn't the biggest deal. It was just a babysitter, but okay. Looks at the name again. He says, Does your wife have varicose veins? I said, Actually, yes. He says, Is that Katut Bashem? I see it. It's right here. I'm like, I don't see it. Okay. So he says, so What do you do for her? It's very hard when you have varicose veins, when you're pregnant, so it's very painful. What are you going to do? Said, no, we try. I'm sitting there, not knowing what to do with myself. He then goes through the names of all my children, 
and he starts literally depicting each one's personality, like to the T. You couldn't fake it. I had five boys, they're different. And he starts describing each one's personality. I don't know, I walked out, I called my father, I said, Daddy, you know, we didn't grow up with this. I don't know what to tell you. I ended up in this person's house. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this guy. I don't know if he's right. He's, I, I know he's right. I don't know if he's kosher, he's trafe. I don't know what his story is, but he definitely knows something. So I said to my father, this doesn't make me comfortable to go to people like this. Like, it's not like I went to him and he said, you know, you're tough kid in life, let's do this. He gave me no practical answer. All he said to me in the end, I said, no, give me something to go home with. I don't care. You read my children's names. What does it do anything for me? You read that my wife has something. So, so what? It doesn't help anybody. Give me something practical. He says, you know, you have very unusual nozzle. You should really take any money that you have and invest it. I said, well, I don't know how to invest. So I'm not, first of all, I don't have so much money and I don't know how to invest. So I said, do me a favor. Instead of giving me all of these platitudes, tell me where to invest the money. How about that? So he says, this I can't tell you. So, so, so what good are you? I don't know. What, what does this do? I didn't walk away with anything. So the whole thing was a very uncomfortable experience. I shared it with my father and I said to him, look, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what the story is. But I said, if I have a woman in our community who is struggling with infertility and she has tried everything and nothing's working. If I have a woman who's looking for a shidduch and she's been dating for years and it's not working. If I have somebody who has cancer and they're, whatever, not that any of those are comparable, but people who are going through a personal difficulty, would you have a problem with me telling that person, go to this man, I'm telling you, there's something that he reads in your name, I don't know what the story is. I said to my father, would you have a problem? He said, look, would I say that I believe in it? No. But can I deny the fact that sometimes these people give an etza that actually might help? Maybe. So he said, if they tell you to do something crazy, then don't do it. But if they're telling you to do something that Yiddishkeit believes in, they're not telling you, start wearing yellow clothing and stand on the roof every day for a half an hour. They're telling you to do something to focus on an area of your life that actually Yiddishkeit believes in. So what could be so bad about that? The truth is, the Torah says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants us to live life bitzvimus. We're not supposed to go to these kinds of people and get the answers to what the future holds for us. It's not the way life is supposed to be lived. But do you fault a person who has a personal issue that really feels they need some kind of guidance and maybe feels they can get it from that person. I said to my father, would you have any problem if I told such an individual to go to this man? He said, no, not a problem. So it was an interesting experience. I don't know what to make of it. I'm not sure why I just shared that. But it was something very, very eye-opening to me. Um, Rav Moshe Feinstein writes an interesting point when we talk about Ayin Hara in general. Rav Moshe Feinstein writes the following. Let's say you have a young married woman who for some reason is unable to become pregnant. The doctors haven't yet figured out what the problem is. It doesn't seem that there's any scientific issue. It doesn't seem there's any medical problem. And the woman is now concerned. Maybe it's an Einhardt. Maybe someone's looking at me. I got married. I had a shit up before everybody else. Maybe they're inflicting, imposing an Einhardt on me. Is that something they have to be concerned about? Rav Moshe writes in a tshuva something very fascinating where he says, if you have an Isha Tzeira, Shehu Kedera Ha'ola, you have a young woman who... It's normal for her to get married. I always wonder, you know, somebody gets engaged. What happens? They call their friends and they tell them, I just got engaged. What's the reaction of many women on the other end? Many young women on the other end. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Right? I always wonder, what are you screaming about? You can't believe it. What's the percentage of girls in the world who actually get married? Why can you not believe it that this person got engaged? Why is it so unreasonable? 
So obviously it's not what you mean, right? But Reb Moshe says it's not unreasonable that a young person dates and gets married and gets pregnant. And therefore he says if a woman gets married and is doing things that are kidder ha'olam, you're not doing anything out of the ordinary. It's not like you're living an opulent lifestyle. It's not like you're in anybody's face. All you did was the innocent act of getting married. There's no ayin hara that you have to be concerned about. That's something that's kidder ha'olam. While it's true that unfortunately some of your friends have not yet had that opportunity, you hope they will, you daven for them, but you shouldn't be concerned, says Ramosha, that an ayin hara is going to be inflicted upon you. There's an amazing story told about Reb Chaim Kanievsky where somebody won the lottery and he told Reb Chaim Kanievsky that he was very concerned Michal is in Israel. So he won a few million shekel and he was very concerned for an ayin hara. So he said to Reb Chaim, what do I do to make sure to save myself from an ayin hara? So Reb Chaim turned back to him and he said, um, have you been through all of Shas? And he says, no. He says, do you even know one Masechta by heart? He says, no. He says, you don't even know one Masechta by heart and you think anyone in the world is going to be jealous of you? Like, what are you concerned about an ayin hara? Who would want to be you? Who would ever want to be So you have a few million shekel, who in the world cares? What does that matter? You don't know anything. You're an Amaretz. So there's nothing to be jealous of. An amazing story just gives you a picture of Reb Chaim Kanievsky on his yard site. Something to think about. But it gives you a perspective. But I think that comment of Rav Moshe is very instructive. Where Rav Moshe writes that it's important to think about the fact Ayin Hara is a consideration. Rav Moshe writes we shouldn't be overly concerned in our lives about such things. But at the same time, Rav Moshe says if all I'm doing is living life Kedarech Olam, I'm doing something that is considered reasonable in my community. While it's true, According to other communities, I may be living an opulent lifestyle. But this is the norm of my community. This is what most people are doing. This is Kedarech Olam. Says Ramosha, Ayin Hara is really not a concern. I see we really don't have so much time left. But something that I just wanted to bring up to consider is the following. We spoke before about the concept, the idea that the Shulchan Aruch and the Gemara describe of Hezek Re'iyah. Hezek Re'iyah is a very interesting concept that the Gemara talks about where I don't physically do anything to someone else's property but somehow I'm still considered to be at fault for damaging it. So for example, the Gemara says, if my friend has a property and I'm looking into his property, we assume that that's considered a hezekriya and therefore I have to put up a fence in between my property and his that I shouldn't, I shouldn't be looking at his property and therefore giving, imposing an ayin hara into his uh, work, into what he does. Okay. Similar to that, but not exactly the same, is what's referred to in the modern-day Svarim as Hazanas Seser. I was talking to someone the other day, and they said that they were having a conversation with another person, and they recorded the conversation, they wanted to play it for me. Now, besides the fact that it's just creepy, and I'm not sure what the legalities of it are, I don't know if you're legally allowed to record other people without their permission, probably not, I would imagine you're not allowed to. What? If you're part of the Uh-huh. Just something that I'm not allowed to do for a third party? Yeah, Meaning if two other people are having a conversation? Uh uh-huh. Okay. But that's interesting. Why isn't it the case that both parties need a consent? That's strange. I'm not. Right? So, if I'm, so that's what happened. Two people were having a conversation. One of them recorded the conversation of the other person and asked me if I want to listen to it. That to me is similar to this idea of hezekriya. I'm causing someone damage not because I'm physically doing anything to them, but I have something damaging that can be done to them without actually doing anything. So how do we view that? What is that? So the Chafetz Chaim quotes a Gemara Maseches Yuma. The Torah says very often, Vayidaber Hashem al Moshe Lehar. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu spoke to Moshe, Lamar saying, what does it mean, Lamar? He spoke, it says, Vayidabar, he spoke to him. So what does it mean, Lamar? says the Gemara, Lamar means, He told Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to teach you the following mitzvah, and the intention is that you should then go on and teach it to other people. Lamar, you should say it to others. That was Moshe Rabbeinu's job. He was the Malami Torah. He was the one who taught the Torah that he received from HaKadosh Baruch Hu and transmitted it to others who didn't know it yet. Says the Gemara, from here we learn, somebody who says, shares information with another person, you have no right to share that information unless I explicitly tell you that you're allowed to share it. How do you know? Because God shared information with Moshe Rabbeinu. And the understanding was that he's not allowed to share it. Hashem had to go out of his way to say, Lamar, you should share it with other people, which means without the explicit permission of HaKadosh Baruch Hu to allow Moshe Rabbeinu to share it, he was not allowed to do so. And from here the Gemara says we learn that if somebody shares something with you, you're not allowed to share it with another person unless you have explicit permission to do so. That's what we learn from the story of Aidabar Hashem Amosha Lehmer. So my father said, basically it's what the Chafetz Chaim says, from here we learn that everyone is entitled to their privacy. From here we learn that something that I share with you is shared in confidence. And certainly something that I didn't share with you, you're standing next to my room and you overhear me having a conversation, certainly, Kavachomer, certainly you're not allowed to share it. If when I even explicitly share something with you, you don't have a right to share with other people, then certainly when I don't share with you and you happen to overhear the conversation and then you think you're allowed to share with someone else, that's certainly a violation of my privacy and that would certainly be something that the halacha would not allow. So this is a very interesting discussion in the postgame. How do we look at Hazana Seser today? What is the status of somebody who overhears a conversation or who records a conversation unbeknownst to the other party? What does the halacha say about that? There's a famous Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom made a bunch of takanos, made a bunch of decrees for the betterment of society. One of them was that if somebody sends you a letter, nobody else is allowed to open up the letter along the way. Right? So sometimes it's so relevant today. Sometimes you're copied on an email and it's so clear that that email was not supposed to be sent to you. Somebody writes reply all. And of course they didn't mean to reply all because they're talking about you. Right? They reply all and they say, Shechter, that guy... And they talk all about you, not realizing that unfortunately you're on the thread of emails. So, what do you do with such a thing? So Rabbeinu Gershom writes, if somebody sends a letter to another person, you have no right to open up the contents of that letter and read it. It was made to be a private communication between person A and person B. And you have no right to get in the middle of that. And that would apply here as well. If somebody meant to have a private conversation and you're going and recording that conversation you're certainly in violation of the Cheir of the Rabbeinu Gershom, which is that you're not allowed to have private information that was not meant for you. And that would be considered to be something damaging. Obviously, if it's something that we have to record for safety reasons, because we're concerned that somebody is going to damage themselves or harm others, then of course you would be allowed to record such a conversation because that is not in violation of the Cheir of the Rabbeinu Gershom. Rabbeinu Gershom's whole Cheir was that for the betterment of society, we have to make sure to do something that people should be able to have privacy. People should be able to know that they can have a confidence with another individual when they talk to them. Right? Imagine people call me all the time about Shaduchim. So I'm happy to talk about Shaduchim. I'm really happy to give a recommendation for anybody. 
But the problem is, sometimes people ask me, is there any history of, of, med- of mental illness in the family? So I always think about that question. So I have a family in my shul who confided in me that they're struggling with mental illness with one of their children. Let's say, do you think I'm going to share that with you? Do you think I'm allowed to share that with you? What's going to happen? Now they're going to call up your pediatrician and they're going to say, is there a history of any illness? So what should the pediatrician say? What? Pediatrician has to say no. But what do you mean? Maybe this person has cancer and they didn't share it with the other side. What's going to happen? We're going to build a family together. Two years into the marriage is going to be, this spouse is going to, you know, the cancer is going to regenerate and we're going to have a problem. The spouse could die young. What are we going to do? Imagine if we had a society that doesn't run based on confidentiality. That we know that we can't trust anybody. We'll never take care of ourselves. What are we going to do? Imagine if every doctor went around and shared information about us with everybody. We would never go back to the doctor. As sick as we might be, people are not going to want to go back. And therefore, that's a major part of everything that we believe in. Says Rabbi Gershom, this is something that will help the society. But if helping society is going to mean, let's say a doctor has a patient who comes in and says, I'm going to kill another person, this is what I plan to do, of course the doctor has to share that. Why do they have to share that? Because it's dangerous if they don't share it. So Rabbeinu Gershom obviously means that you're only not allowed to share information when it's something that is private information, but if it's something that can harm another individual, and by sharing the information I can help or I can limit that risk or harm, then of course I have to think carefully about how to do that in the right way, but I would be allowed to do it. Or say, for example, let's say a person is being irresponsible in the way that they're talking. They're having a private conversation, but they're doing it on the Long Island Railroad when everybody's listening, when lots of people, which, stop, I hate when people have conversations on the train. It's just disruptive to everybody else, but okay. So I'm having a conversation, and I'm having the conversation in a way that everybody can hear me. So would you say that then I'm not allowed to share that information with somebody else? What would you say? So let's look back. What was the Cherem de of Gershom? Cherem de Rabbeinu Gershom was, if I send a letter to another person, nobody else should read it. That means when I send a private letter to another individual, then it's not made for you, you shouldn't read it. If I send an email to another person and it happens to be open on the screen, you shouldn't be reading it. But what if a person wants to get a letter to another person, to another individual, and instead of sending it privately in the mail in an envelope, they hang it on the communal poster board. They send it out as a communal email. By the way, I would love to get this message to my friend, and the best way, the most effective way to do that is to share it with the whole community. Is there then a problem with me sharing that information? Of course not. Obviously, you're not careful about sharing information privately. You're not careful about confidentiality. You're having the conversation on the Long Island Railroad where other people can hear you. That means it's not my problem that I overheard it. The whole discussion here is talking about where somebody causes damage to another person by taking information that was not meant for them to hear and using that information to harm them. That's where the whole discussion comes. And it's similar to this whole idea of what we started with, which is the Hezek Re'iyah, which comes from the Ayin Hara. Again, it's an example of something which is not a direct physical um, harm to another person, but it's something that can be a tremendous harm to them when you think about the outcome and the result of sharing that information that was not meant to be shared with me and in turn not meant to be shared with others. Okay.